Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. We're glad you're here today as we continue the series One in Christ, a study of Ephesians. This Sunday, Pastor Kevin Dibley talked about the doctrine of redemption. It's based on Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. Redemption is staggering because it is the great truth that God has come to rescue his enemies from captivity at the price of his own son. At the greatest personal cost to himself, God has come to set us free from our captivity to sin and to make us his own people. God's mission for us begins with a willingness and a determination not to just announce this forgiveness, but to actually love and forgive our enemies. Are you willing to extend to others what God has extended to you in Christ? Are you open to considering deeply what redemption means not only for your personal forgiveness, but your forgiveness of those around you? Will you start praying for yourself and one another as we come to rejoice in the gift of redemption? Let's worship together as we understand the freedom and forgiveness of redemption. One of the things you'll notice as we read through Ephesians, this first section is it's thick and it's repetitive almost in terms of emphasizing the glory of God's grace. Um, but uh, what you're meant to experience as the word is being read and you're thinking on it is just how rich the gospel is. Paul is writing with a great deal of um, excitement and gratitude and praise to God for what salvation means to us. And so the whole, from verse 3 to 14, is one sentence. And so Paul, is just, it's just thick with expressions of gratitude and praise and what we have in salvation and so that's how this is meant to land on you as you come into worship on Sunday and go out uh, from worship today you are meant to go out with a sense of the deep rich love and grace of God for you in the gospel I just want to set you up for that you should just be pondering personally how much the Lord loves you and cares for you I do want to thank Andy for preaching last Sunday. We, were, we did a quick trip. We dashed up Saturday, came back on Tuesday, early Tuesday morning to have Thanksgiving with my family. I haven't been home for Canadian Thanksgiving. I can't actually remember being home for Canadian Thanksgiving, so I can't remember when it was. So I was, when, yeah, that's right, I was Canadian. <laughs> but I was, yeah, but I meant home, home to my parents, not just in Canada. And uh, so it was good to be able to do that, pick up my mom and dad, and then go and see the kids and see my brother and his family. So I haven't done that forever. So that was, that was a grace. But thank you, Andy, for preaching. I listened to his sermon uh, last week. He did a superb job. The thing I liked about uh, the sermon last Sunday was it really was a good biblical counseling sermon. And as you're applying the gospel to family, to marriage, to work, uh, Andy just did a good job, I think, of applying it that way. And so I, I intend to listen to it again. And if you haven't heard it, I just encourage you just read it and just think, okay, in terms of just application of how the gospel shapes my real life experiences, I hope that you'll do that again. But um, And, and uh, Andy, you have to preach sooner than you said, so I'll be after you for that. But that was a gift of grace. Here's how I want to start um, the message this morning, and I'm doing it because I really do believe that it applies here. This is what Paul is up to in Ephesians. But I want to ask the question, um, what would the Apostle Paul think that Christians should do in light of the Middle East conflict uh, that has kind of exploded over the last week. This horrific thing that has been shown globally over uh, the last uh, seven, eight, nine days, however long it's been 
since um, the invasion into Israel from, by Hamas. Um, and I, I think I don't, I, the other thing I want to be careful of is I don't want to give an overly simplistic answer to the question. There are many answers on how we as Christians can respond. Certainly we have to pray. Um, but I believe in light of Ephesians, that's how I'm asking the question. According to Paul in Ephesians, what would Paul suggest should happen by believers with what's going on in the Middle East right now? And I believe that this is what Paul would say. I think Paul would say, I think we need to plant a church somewhere near the Israel and Gaza border. Now I say that because in part, I'm going to clarify that, I know there are churches there. But I think if you were Paul sitting in Ephesians, you asked him what you think should happen. I think Paul would say what we need is a group of Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, who have a supernatural power and the message of the gospel that is able to unite people who have deep historical hatreds and prejudices and wounds. What we need people not just to hear, but to see is that there is only one thing that can circumvent, that can overcome the kind of hostility and hatred that has divided people for millenniums, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only Christ can overcome those wounds. Only Jesus can bring enemies together. When people realize in the gospel that God has come to love his enemies, and penetrated the darkness of our hostility against him and rescued us for himself. We get a model of not only what we are to declare, but how we are to live together. Um, When Paul went into areas to advance the kingdom of God, I want you to hear this, Paul didn't just go preach the gospel. Paul established, by the grace of God, gospel communities. That's what he did. If you read the book of Acts, if you listen to what he's saying in Ephesians, these circular letters to churches, Paul would go into an area, preach the gospel, people would come to Christ, and then he would establish a community that was made out of very different people who wouldn't normally be together, and he would establish them as a forgiving, a restorative, redemptive community in the midst of all the chaos. That's what he does in Ephesus. That's what he does in all of the churches. He established communities where people would not just preach, but they would model the forgiveness of the gospel. People coming out of these hostile places need to walk into communities and see there's another way. And there's a God who does things radically differently. On Wednesday night in our uh, Ecclesia class, Gabe was teaching on church membership, and he referenced Jonathan Lehman's book on church, what is church membership, and Jonathan Lehman uses a metaphor for the church. He says the church is an embassy. Do you know what an embassy is? Uh, If you're living in in one of these countries and this is going on, you're glad you have an embassy that you can flee to sometimes. But this is what Jonathan Lehman says in his book on church membership. I like this. He says, what's a gathered church? It's an embassy of heaven. So I want you to think about that. It's a a metaphor that's helpful. 
He says it's an embassy of heaven. Jesus didn't ask the United States or the United Nations, the U.S. Supreme Court, or the Harvard University Philosophy Department to represent him and his judgments. He asked the humble, the lowly, the things that are not. He asked Bumblestew Baptist and Possum's Hollow Presbyterian to represent him and declare his heavenly judgments. Step inside Bumblestew Baptist or Possum Hollow's Presbyterian and what should you find? A whole different nation, sojourners, exiles, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so um, the idea is that if you were a Palestinian or a Jew and you were fleeing conflict and you came to an embassy, you would come into another nation. And in that nation, the culture of the nation would be lived out in the middle of a foreign territory. And the idea here is you would come into this embassy, the church, and you would be struck by former Hasidic Jews and former Hamas members loving each other, forgiving each other, worshiping under the only name that could possibly bring them together. Jesus Christ. That's how the church is meant to function. That's how Ephesians reads. That's why I want to set this up for you this way because we're going to talk about redemption. Redemption of God's forgiveness of us. God making his enemies his family. And we're going to look at that, but Paul is setting you up because what he's doing in Ephesians is he's saying you love the fact that God loved his enemies. Now love your enemies. Be a forgiving, gracious community so that your enemies might come in and go, wow, it's a whole different world. Let me show you that in the letter. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. The first three chapters are meant to blow you away with the gospel. The last three chapters are meant to turn it on its head on you and get you to live out the gospel. And so this is meant to glory. But look at Ephesians chapter 4, the end of the chapter, because this is an interesting um, section of scripture Ephesians 4 verse 30 do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God I just want you to think about that what's what would grieve the Holy Spirit of God yeah and, and a specific kind of sin notice what he says here do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption so, so we're going to talk about redemption in chapter 1, verse 7. That's what it's about. He's telling us there's a day when everything's going to be redeemed. All of creation's going to be made new. You are going to be part of that. Now he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit through whom you're participating in redemption. Don't grieve that spirit. How? You say how? He says this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Again, read that verse in the Middle East. Read that verse, because that's what Paul was dealing with. Those kind of, those, these racial hostilities go way back. When they, were, when they were sending missiles into Ashkelon, I was thinking 1 Samuel. I mean, this is, these are hostilities that have been going on for so long he says let all bitterness wrath anger clamor slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as how as God in Christ has forgiven you 
Therefore be imitators of God and as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you can kind of take the double-edged sword. On the one side, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by keeping the war going on. The war in your heart, the war of slander and bitterness and anger. Kill the, uh, the hostility. So on one hand, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, look at Jesus, what he did for you. Gave himself up for his enemies. That's a fragrant offering to God. So this morning we're going to talk about redemption and the mission of God. And I believe that in redemption what God is doing is saving us from our hostile relationship with him so that we would go out and not be a cul-de-sac where grace stops with us, but the forgiving grace of God comes through us to other people. So to bring it down another level, because this is where it has to go, are you willing to be in that mission? The question for you and I this morning is, are you willing to forgive? Because the forgiveness you've received has to begin here. And when people begin to come to the embassy, what should they see? People with deep hostilities and hurts from background over race, over religion, over experiences loving, serving, and forgiving one another. And it's a miracle, and the only explanation is Jesus. Are you willing to forgive? Who does God want you to forgive today? Think about that. Okay, so let's start. Let's go back to Ephesians 1, 7, and let's talk about redemption. What is redemption? Paul says this in 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of our sins. The word redemption, apolutrosis in the trusis in the Greek means release or liberation from imprisonment or captivity. So strong meaning for redemption is someone who's a captive, a hostage if you want to put it that way, who gets their freedom given to them. That's what this is. So you're you're held captive and you are set free. In him we have been set free. We've been held captive, and Jesus has set us free. Now, in the scriptures, largely redemption, and we use the word redeem this way in our language, you know, thinking, redemption is the paying of a price in order to set a captive free. So there's, there's laws in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament that you could actually in, become an indentured servant. Uh, you would be so in debt, to someone that you would become their servant in order to pay off the debt. Or you would, in those days, a family member would pay off a debt on behalf of the family by becoming a servant. And so Jewish law, the, the Old Testament law, had rules about them that if you have somebody as such a servant in your household who's Jewish, you were not to sell them to a non-Jewish person that they might be taken away into captivity somewhere else. But you could redeem that person. Somebody could be your kinsman redeemer, in a sense, and come and buy you out of captivity. That was true about people. That was true about land. Listen to this text, Leviticus 25, uh, 25 to 27. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what the brother has sold. 
If a man has no one to redeem it, then he himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. So there were ways to pay back a debt in order that you might get your land. Land means a lot in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. It's part of your identity and your nationality. And they were not allowed to hold somebody's land uh, forever. There was a year of jubilee where you all got your land back and you moved back to your national or your, your family uh, land ownership. And so you'd move back into those boundaries that were given to you. But the idea here is that redemption is the payment of a price to set a captive free. It's the word that's used in the Old Testament when God says to Israel, I redeemed you out of your slavery in Egypt. Listen to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verse 6. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. Now I like this. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all the peoples. He said, but it is because the Lord loved you and is keeping his oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So when we hear texts like that and we come to Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption the forgive, through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, you and I are meant to realize we were captives. And God, through his son, paid the price for our liberation. He's set us free from our captivity to sin. And Paul's argument is, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's not because of you and your nationality that you get free. It's because of God and his grace. In redemption, Paul goes to great lengths to say, both Jews and Gentiles were slaves to sin, captive to their idols, and needed to be rescued. He makes a big deal of this in Galatians. He says Gentiles were held captive to their sins, non-Jews. In verse 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so this is what Paul says. Gentiles were held captive. They were slaves to sin. And Jesus was hung on the tree, which according to the law was that he was cursed by God. But he was cursed by God to take the curse away from you and me. He, he paid the debt. The curse isn't simply, oh man, I'm cursed. The curse is you're condemned by your sin under the law of God. And we are under condemnation. Jesus took our condemnation on the cross. Jesus took your condemnation to set you free, to redeem you from your enslavement to sin, to redeem you from your condemnation under a just and a holy God. Jesus took that to set you free. Aren't you glad for that? He redeemed you. But he didn't just redeem the Gentile. He redeemed the Jew through the same means the cross of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, 
the Jews had the law. But the difficulty is the law never set them free from their sin. It only showed them they needed to be set free from their sin. And he uses the illustrations like a tutor who was given over a child. And the law was given to say you need to behave. So you know parents, there are times when you get a babysitter and the kids are there and the babysitter comes in and you read the riot act to the kids. Now you listen to what she says. And if you don't listen to what she says, you'll deal with me. When I get home, well, maybe I'm the only one that's ever done that, but that, that's kind of the idea, right? You listen to the babysitter because they're standing in our place. That was what the law was. And, and what happened was the law was a tutor to bring them not to innocence, but to bring them to Jesus because they disobeyed the babysitter, which was the law. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4. I mean that an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different than a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Listen to this. But when the fullness of time came, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has set the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so this is the remarkable thing. Redemption was not simply for you to be set free from your captivity to sin. It was so that you would be adopted into the family of God. Talk about a status change. Captive and condemned, now sons and daughters of the royal blood, the royal family. Redemption is God setting captives free at the price of his son, and it's God forgiving his enemies at the price of the blood of his son. Ligon Duncan says, Redemption refers supremely to the work of Christ on our behalf, whereby he purchases and ransoms us at the price of his own son, securing our deliverance from bondage and condemnation of sin. As the old song goes, he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Aren't you glad that God did that? Aren't you glad that God came and sent his son to pay for your captivity. Even now you just think of people who are being held hostage in the Middle East and how horrifying that fear is. That language, friends, is what you and I were under sin. Sin violates us. Sin has no compassion. Sin will do whatever it wants to destroy us. That's what it is. You were enslaved and captured by sin. And it's, we don't even know. We, we think it's life. It lies to us. We get deceived by it. We think, and it just absolutely violates us and takes away from God. And Christ came in and died on the tree in our place to get us out. You know, we think, how do you get the captives out of captivity? There is only one answer. The blood of Jesus Christ set us free. Does that blow you away? Isn't that a marvelous encouragement to you today? That's the meaning of redemption. The blood of Jesus Christ came and bought you out of captivity. Condemnation and made you a child of God. Now here's what I want to do. I want to meditate on this a little further. I'm going to take it a little deeper. 
Walk through the text because I'm setting you up, Paul's setting you up to ask the question, if you really believe God did this for you, how are you going to treat your enemies? As God brings them to you, as God brings them to himself, how are you going to do this? So I want to walk back through this text of scripture and just break it down and say this is what the doctrine of redemption does. Why don't you hear this? The doctrine of redemption doesn't just save you from guilt and condemnation. The doctrine of redemption is meant to save you from bitterness and hostility, unforgiveness. That's what it's meant to do. That's how Paul's setting up. If you really get the gospel and you're amazed that God loved you as enemy in this way, it's meant to so change your heart that you would love your enemies. And can I say to you, some of you have got bitterness. Some of us have bitterness. Some of us have deep-rooted wounds that need to be, we need to be freed from. Some of us are here with unforgiveness today. Do you want to be free? Redemption. So listen to this. Let's walk through the text. In him, we have redemption. In him. This is a crucial phrase for the Apostle Paul. And I want you to hear this. When he says in him, what he means is not Jesus objectively over there and us over there and Jesus dying over there on the cross for our sins and we are disconnected in any relational way from him. What he's actually saying is when you are in Christ, you have redemption. That God isn't simply giving you liberty, God is giving you his son. When God is forgiving your sins, he's not simply paying the guilt, he's actually bringing you into relationship. It is in the son that you get redemption. It is in relationship. It is a restored, reconciled relationship. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we have been given this mission. We are ambassadors for Christ, urging you, be reconciled to God. We have a reconciling God. That when Christ comes, he restores us into relationship with him. Forgiveness comes with the restored relationship with God through the Son. You don't get redemption and stay in isolation. It doesn't make sense to God. That's not what it's about. You don't say, oh, I got forgiveness. I'm going to sit over here by myself. What you have is a relationship with God. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Did the father forgive the son? Did the son get, have it all worked out on the way? He's, he's, he's walking home trying to figure out how to negotiate a relationship with his father. And while he's blabbing out, Father, my, your, son, your servants are, are treated better than I was, and I'll just be happy to be. While he's talking about it, his father is smothering him with kisses and grabbing his arm around him and calling for a ring and a robe and a slaughtering of, a, uh, uh, of the fatted calf. His father is going, it's us, you're home. He treats him like a son. He thinks he should be treated like a servant. Friends, that's what we have. In him. God gave you his son forever. And that son is not ashamed to call you his brother. Feel that today. Because sometimes in our forgiving of others, we say, I'll forgive him, but I won't restore the relationship. 
And I understand that, and there's got to be a lot of dynamics that work out there, but I need you to stop and realize, aren't you glad God didn't say that? Aren't you glad that God didn't say, I'll forgive your sins, but go sit in the corner? He said, come and sit at the table. In him, we have redemption. Second thing we need to ponder here is we have redemption, not we get to get redemption. Now, there's a future sense, and he's going to redeem everything. There's called a day of redemption coming where all of creation will be brought into the fullness and fruit of everything that Jesus has done. But this is past tense. This is we have redemption. John Stott says, The deliverance is a rescue from the just judgment of God upon our sins. The price paid was the shedding of Christ's blood when he died for our sins on the cross. Forgiveness, listen to Stott, is a present privilege which we have and enjoy now. We have redemption. This is another way of Paul saying in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. My dear friends, this isn't redemption dangling on a string. If you have Jesus, you have redemption. If you have Jesus, your sins are paid in full. If you have Jesus, there is now no condemnation. You have it now. You might not feel it. But let me tell you this. You don't need, like we said at the beginning, and we, you know, we say to ourselves, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Why? Because I forget his benefits. I forget that I'm forgiven. The little narrative, the treadmill that goes on, the hamster wheel in my mind says, I should be better, I should have done better, God's against me, I'll never be good enough, all these kind of things. Stop, put a stick in the wheel, let the hamster fly off the wheel. You have redemption. Can I say that today? Believer, you have redemption. The payment is paid, you are set free. You are no longer a captive. You are a child of the living God. Believe that today. We have redemption through his blood. Part of it is we have to say that this is not cheap grace. It seems cheap because I haven't done anything. I feel like it's, it sounds better that I have to go to Mass and I have to make the, uh, offer the alms and I've got to do it day in and day out and hopefully I get through stage A to stage B to seventh heaven somehow. My dear friends, it's not cheap grace. It's the most costly grace there is. It was the blood of the Son of God. Your freedom cost the most precious element in the universe, in the all of reality, in the cosmos. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed, listen to that language. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You go into a jewelry store and a and a jeweler brings out a diamond, they'll get out a glass and say, just look and see if you can find any spots or blemishes in the diamond. You can, you can look at people's lives and say, can I, they look like they've got it pretty well together. You, if you could examine every human being in all of eternity, the, the most righteous, religious, devout, uh, heroic missionary or pastor or whatever you'd see down through the ages that get written up in the textbooks. If you look carefully, there's spot after spot after spot after spot. 
Blemish after blemish after blemish after blemish. But you look at Jesus. You look at his royal blood. There's no spot of shame. There's no guilt. There's no sin. There's nothing there but perfection. Only that could take away your sin. And he poured it out for you. My dear friends, do you hear that? The most precious, most valuable treasure in all of existence for the Father was the Son. And that Son let His blood be shed in your place so that you would be redeemed, paid for, forgiven, set free. Notice again as he says this in this text, not only is it through the blood, but it is the forgiveness of our trespasses. I just want to emphasize this. It's trespasses in the plural. And if you take the trespasses in the plural, I'm going to tell you, it's a deep, deep hole. It's a dark, dark pit. Um, we, we had Thanksgiving last week, and so last Sunday we had Thanksgiving dinner. And after dinner, we decided we needed to go walk it off or do something. You know, it was kind of cold. So the girls told me, um, there's a hawk viewing area down near Lake Erie. Uh, Fafa, you got to see it. So they took, me down to the, took us down to the hawk viewing area. It's just the girls and me. And so we go down to the hawk viewing area. Just so you know, the hawk viewing area is where you watch turkey vultures. There's no hawks there at, at all at Thanksgiving. It was just a bunch of turkey vultures flying around. But that was good. So we're staying with the kids. But right beside the... The, the ho- supposed hawk viewing area was a field of soybeans that hadn't been harvested yet. And I grew up in farm country down there, and it's just like here. It's corn and soybeans and wheat. And I grew up with farming family, so one of the things I love to do when it's this time of year is the soybeans get dry, and you go out and you pick a handful of soybeans. There's billions of soybeans in the field. I just like to pop them out of the shelf, pop them in my mouth and have some. So there at the hockey, and I see the soybeans. I go walking over and I pick a few soybeans out of the field. And my little granddaughter, Corey, is standing over there going, fa-fa. <laughs> and then she points to a sign, no trespassing. <laughs> so I pop them in my mouth looking at her. And then I do a very Adam and Eve thing in the garden. You want some? <laughs> uh, anyway, I believe I'm forgiven now. But um, those are the traumas where the, your grandchildren realize you're not the hero you think you are. You know. <laughs> anyway, but you know that's trespassing. You've crossed the line, my dear friends. How many times do you cross the line? In word, thought, and deed. Not cross the line a little bit. Cross the line. One cross of the line. One breaking of the law over and over again in our thoughts and our words and deeds. My dear friends, he has redeemed us, not for that one time we sort of did it too bad where we crossed the line and it was the the sin of no return. My dear friends, he's given us the forgiveness of all our trespasses. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. All of it for all of us who put our trust in him. Isn't that good news? Remember the story, Simon the Pharisee has Jesus over for dinner. And a woman comes rushing in. And she makes a scene. 
She's crying at Jesus' feet. She's wiping his his feet with her hair. She's pouring costly perfume on him. And Simon the Pharisee looks at Jesus and goes, man, if you knew what kind of woman this was, and he's got a whole list of her sins in his head, that she is a sinner. He says that. If this man knew what kind of woman this is, that she's a sinner, he would not be letting her carry on like this. Jesus turned and said, Simon, you haven't washed my feet. You didn't even greet me with a kiss. This woman hasn't stopped kissing me since she came in, and she hasn't stopped washing my feet with her hair and her tears since she sat here. And I'll tell you the difference. She's forgiven, and you're not. Because he who is forgiven much, what? Loves much. Those are Jesus' words. He who is forgiven much, loves much see what paul's doing in ephesians have you been forgiven much i don't know what that some some sit here and say yeah but if you knew that one sin or you knew that one period of my life or if you knew what i struggled with stop stop he knows and he redeemed you from that those trespasses And finally, in the text, I want you to see according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Take that language. Riches of his grace lavished. When's the last time you used the word lavish? It's not God saying, okay, I'll give you a chance again. Wringing his hands. It's not God saying, okay, I'll give you a little bit for this moment, but... This is God giving you all the grace you need to be forgiven, all the grace you need to be freed, all the grace you need to get home to glory. He is lavishing all the grace that is necessary, grace upon grace to the praise of the glory of his grace. Are you glad for that? It's not a little bottle. You're thinking, okay, we got to, you know. Christmas time, I like Christmas cake. You know, that fruit cake that's made of rubber and stuff like that. Most people don't like. I love it. So I'm, that's one of my and 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 even though it's like a theoretical conception that somebody might want some of this, I like cut that down real careful. I have a cup of coffee, a little piece of fruit cake with all the plastic toys built in and stuff like that, and I just love it. And I eat it and I go in and I watch that thing begin to fade. It's like you know what. This thing's going to be gone before New Year's. I think Mary Ann's probably thinking, I hope so. <laughs> but, you know, we, we kind of have this concept sometimes, you know, I've got the, it's been the bridge too far. It's been the sin too many. It's been the hopeless story that, that's been reiterated in my life. My dear friends, I'll Paul say it later in chapter 3. I want you to be so rooted and grounded in the love of God in Christ Jesus that you might know the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Infinite height, infinite width, infinite breadth, infinite depth. Do you understand that? His grace is n- not short. His, his, listen to Clinton Arnold. He says, the abundant grace is not only potential, it's actual. Christ, because it's already in the aorist and Dick, past tense, already pour, is already poured out. He has lavished it on his people. The grace is sufficiently abundant to cover all the sins, past, present, and future, and is adequate for the worst of sinners. Our God is rich in grace. His bank account is not too short. 
and he did not spare his son. Paul Tripp says, by lavish grace, deliverance is available to us every day. He alone has the power to transform the controversial thoughts, desires, motives, and choices of our heart. Isn't that beautiful? To the praise of the riches of his grace that he's lavished on us in Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus every day, every moment, every hour. You'll never find the well dry. You never found the bank account empty. You never find his heart cold. Go to Jesus. Run to him. And that leads us to the last part. If that's blown you away, what are you going to do with other people? What are we going to do with this world? What are you going to do with Palestinians and Israelis? What are you going to do with Hamas leaders? What are we going to do? They need the gospel. It's the only thing that can cover any of us and all of us. Listen, listen to what Paul says. Go back to Ephesians 1. After he says this at the end of verse 7, he, is, he says that he is, in verse 8, he's lavished upon us, he says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Stop and think about this. What's Paul saying? God has redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's given us grace in his son through his blood, but he's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. He's saying, understand your redemption in, large, in light of God's larger plan. God's larger plan is to bring everything together united under Jesus Christ. He calls it the mystery of Christ. And he's not calling it the mystery of Christ because he doesn't understand it. He's saying in past times they're thinking, what, how's God going to solve this? How's God going to resolve this? How's God going to keep all his promises that he made in the Old Testament? And the answer, he's going to keep it through the blood of the crucified and risen Savior. That's how. Take your, take your Bible and look at Ephesians 3. Paul comes back to this. And you and I need to see it. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. What is this mystery of Christ? He says in verse 4, sorry, look at chapter 3, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he says, they didn't get the piece of the puzzle that solved all the promises and prophecies. We got it now. When the Holy Spirit came, it was made known to us. This is it. Look at verse 6. The mystery is this. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same party, uh, same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's God's plan. God's plan is to save Jews and Gentiles with historic hostilities and deep divisions and great ones. That was Paul's, that was Paul's reality. He would go through Gentile areas. He would first go to a synagogue and announce the gospels. The Jews would come to him and then there would be a persecution against Paul and he would go to the Gentiles and there'd be a church worshiping Jews and Gentiles together in that place. And then Paul would leave town. And he's going, I'm wanting you to see this because I used to oppose anybody who didn't just support the Jews alone until I realized I was persecuting Jesus. And he said, now I come into town and say, Jesus has got a new people, a new man, one people made of Jews and Gentiles who are under one Lord, the risen and crucified Jesus. That's what he's teaching. So I did that every time. Do you understand that's what happened to you? 
Did you like it earlier when I said you're a child of God? Bought by royal blood? Aren't you glad for that? Don't you want everybody to have that privilege? What about your enemies? The mission is this, of redemption. Forgiveness in Christ is to be offered to all the nations of the earth through Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles are given the privilege and benefits of adoption as sons. God is saving Jews and Gentiles and giving him the give them the privilege to become the children of God. Jews can be children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Palestinians are many brothers and sisters with us through Jesus Christ. Paul warns us we've got to be careful in this world when we have corrupt rulers and political parties and all these things. He, he warns Titus to say in Titus chapter 3, he says, make sure you tell the people that when the world is going off, we don't get all riled up by the, the kings and the rulers who are corrupt, who are hating and all this kind of stuff, and we get grumpy and radical and all that kind of stuff. He says, you've got to be reminded, that was us. Listen to Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing all our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Just so you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has been going on globally since Adam and Eve fell into sin. Man has been murdering his brother since Cain and Abel. This is what sin does. This is the enslavement that he does. He said we were doing that, but what? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Let me circle back. The church as an embassy... If you're coming out of a hateful world where you've been hateful, sinful world, where you've been sinful, and you come into the church, what should you find? People you would never think worshiping together. Worshiping together. People who have great hostilities forgiving each other. Long stories of alienation. Choosing to love and serve one another. The radical message of the gospel is that God loves his enemies. God demonstrated his love towards us while we were yet sinners. Paul will make much of it in chapter 2. He was dead in his transgressions and sins. God made him alive in Christ Jesus. I don't know if any of you have read the book Son of Hamas. But it's an interesting story of um, Masab Hassan Youssef who was the son of the lead Hamas religious leader. And let me read you a quote from the Jerusalem Post in 2015. Masab Hassan Yusuf was born in Ramallah as the son of a Hamas leader in a family with deep ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. He says he grew up in what was called a state of delusion in which he believed the Israel and the United States were the greatest e evils. His as his father's eldest son, he was the apparent successor in the Hamas regime. He said, you saw people dying on a daily basis. It was very hard to see through the lens of a child and make connections with all that the Palestinian leaders were doing, sometimes sending children into situations to die at checkpoints. He said, I could not see that the real enemy at times was the leadership 
of the Palestinians. He said, I blamed everything on Israel. He's talking about his early years. And then he says this later. When I was first introduced to Christ, I learned to love my enemy unconditionally, and that was my core motive. I love that. That was my core motive. He says, that's what put me on this crazy experiment, this irrational experiment with truth. What is he saying there? He's saying, and if you read the, his story, his testimony, it wasn't until he heard the command, love your enemies, that he woke up and realized that he had been raised in a different world. Totally changed him. And he said, that's when I began this irrational experiment with truth. What's an irrational experiment with truth? Loving your enemies. Forgiving those who have wounded you. Living out the gospel. That sounds crazy in his world. That sounds crazy in our world. We live in a world where we what? We cancel each other. We write each other off. We abandon each other. We fail to forgive. My dear friends, that's captivity. That's slavery. Bitterness, what? Unforgiveness is the poison that people drink hoping to kill other people, right? Many of us have been poisoned by our bitterness towards others. Are you poisoned by that? My dear friends, we've got redemption through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. If God so loved us, let us love one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. If we were left to ourselves, dear God, we would be uh, increasingly bitter, embittered. We would be alienated from one another. We would put up walls and barriers based on not only our experiences, but the experiences of all the people around us in this world where there is so much evil, so much cruelty, so much injustice. Father, we are not putting those things as insignificant. They're really great. They're awful. They're horrific. But I thank you, dear God, that you came to save your enemy, which is me. You came to substitute your son for me. You came to shed his blood, the most precious gift that you could possibly give in order that my sins would be, though they are scarlet, would be as white as snow. And so I ask, Heavenly Father, that at this day when we celebrate our redemption, that you would put us on mission to be that embassy where we love one another, we love and forgive one another, and we emulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you, Father. We worship you and we praise you through Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.